Muting. Okay, ready to go. Okay, this is the Shia on the book of Yechezkel, Le'ilu Nishmosim Ephraim Shmuel ben Avram Ari HaKohen, and Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel HaKohen on Yechezkel. <coughs> we're in chapter 10, and in chapter, chapter 10 we're in verse 2. We're just finishing verse 2. Um, chapter 10 deals with uh, God, God leaving Yerushalayim um, before the destruction of Yerushalayim in this continuing vision uh, that Yechezkel is having and God so to speak as he's leaving he gives instructions um, and uh, to the prophet to the prophet to uh, the angel Gabriel to destroy the city and this we see in verse 2 chapter 10 verse 2 Vayomel ish Levush Abadim God said to the man in white linen which is the angel Gabriel, Vayama Bo El Binos La Gilgal, Tachas La Kruv, go to the wheels underneath the Kruv, in other words, the fire that uh, existed between the two sets of angels, the Chayot, which we discussed in great detail in chapter 1, and the Ophanim, um, which are directly below the Chayot, Umalei Chofnecho, and fill your hands up with fiery coals, me benos la kruvim, from in the area between the kruvim, the chayos, uh, and the afanim, these circular uh, wheel shaped angels, uzarok al ha'ir, and throw the fire onto the city of Yerushalayim, vayovo la'inai. And Yechesel said, I saw him come forward in front of my eyes. And we, we were discussing this verse, and we were discussing the fact at the end of last week's year that, Yechezkel, that uh, the angel Gabriel doesn't do, ex- as we're going to see, doesn't do exactly what he's told to do here. And uh, as we're going to see shortly. But I just want to mention before we move on to, um, on to uh, the third verse, uh, uh, the connection between Gabriel and fire. Now, Gabriel is a destructive angel, as we know. Gabriel was responsible for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. He was responsible for the destruction of the Assyrian army outside of Yerushalayim, which, is, which would, took place uh, on Ere Pesach, or not on the night of Pesach, on the night of Seder night, which is why we say in the Seder nights, Vayhi Bechatzi Halayla, it's one of the... Um, Songs or one of the poems we say after the meal in the second part of the Seder, by Hebrew, refers to the night of Pesach when Sanchera, the king of Assyria's army, was defeated, destroyed outside Jerusalem. Uh, that was Gavriel working. So, but there's a strong connection um, in, in Kabbalistic works, but also in the Tanakh itself that connects Gavriel with fire. Here we see Gavriel has been given instructions to take fire from below the feet of the Chayot um, and above where the Ophanim, these other types of angels, we'll discuss both of them in a bit more detail later on. Uh, but there's, there's an area of fire there. He's been told to take fire and throw it on the city. And uh, as we're going to see, he's not going to do that. But Well, he's going to do it, but he's not going to do it straight away. Um, but there's a, a, a long-standing connection between the, the, the angel of Gabriel and fire and the Gemara and Psochim on Dachuf Yud Ches um, again, it's very appropriate because we're talking about Pesach and this is a Gemara from Psochim and the Gemara there discusses um, the famous story of Nimrod Nimrod who was uh, a murderer and a, you know, a Hitler's Tuts type figure uh, in the early years of the creation, he lived at the time of Abraham, Abraham, and uh, when Abraham destroyed all the idols, so the Medrash says, and uh, we know from the Gemara, that Nimrod wants to f- throw Abraham into the fire, into a fiery furnace. And uh, the Medrash says, the Gemara there in Psochim says that Gabriel uh, said to God, he says, listen, let me go down and cool down the furnace. I'm the master of fire. Let me go down and cool down the furnace so that Avram will be saved. Um, and so God said to him, no, that's not your job. Um, it's my job. Uh, 
I am unique. God says, I am unique in the universe, or I am unique in the creation. And Avraham is unique in his physical environment. And therefore, it's fitting for the unique one to save another unique one. So God said, God, so to speak, went down and saved Avraham himself. Um, and as the Gemara there says, God does not withhold reward from any creature who seeks to perform a good deed. So God said to Gabriel, you will merit in the future to rescue three of Avram's descendants under similar circumstances. So we know that the Gemara says that uh, in the name of Reb Shimon HaShiloni, that when Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> through Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's what they were called in uh, Babylonian, but we call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he threw them um, into the uh, furnace, and the reason he did that was that Nebuchadnezzar built a large statue of himself, and he instructed everybody that passed it to bow in front of it. And um, very interestingly, um, the, the, the statue itself was not an Avodazora. It wasn't an idol. He didn't, he didn't think of himself, he didn't think of his statue as a, as a that you were bowing down to a divine being. But uh, he built a statue of himself to represent him as the great king. And strictly speaking, from a Lachic perspective, it wasn't... Uh, uh, prohibited to bow down to the statue. If you see a statue of a king, so you're allowed to bow, bow your head. But Hanani, Mishal, and Azari didn't want to do so. And as a result of that, they were cast into the uh, the furnace. Now, what's very interesting is that uh, this is exactly, uh, you know, uh, history repeats itself. Two and a half thousand years later, you had Saddam Hussein, um, who lived in... Um, Iraq, which is uh, formerly Babylonia, and uh, he built a statue himself, and everyone was supposed to bow their heads when they passed it, and he built a palace for himself, and on every brick, the, the American army were absolutely amazed to find that on every brick uh, of the palace, the word Nebuchadnezzar was engraved on the bricks, so he fancied himself as a bit of a Nebuchadnezzar. Anyway, back to the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Zarius. They were being thrown into the fiery furnace. And the angel of hail, um, which you've probably never come across before, who's called Yurkamo, um, one of the inner, inner circle of God's angels, the Amalachai Ashores, um, who we talk about on Friday night. Shalom Aleichem, Amalachai Ashores. So one of the Amalachai Ashores, one of the ministering, ministering angels is called Yurkamo. Um, the ones we're familiar with are Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael, Michael, Metatron. Um, but there's one called Yurkamo. He's the angel of hell. And he's requested to God. And he t- said to God, let me go down. I'm the angel of hell. Let me go down and extinguish the fire and save the three righteous men, Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah, from the furnace. Um, and uh, Gabriel piped up. Gabriel said to God, if we save these uh, three men, these three holy men, uh, using uh, the power of Yurkamo, using the power of the angel of hail, uh, then the overt power of God will not be evident. Uh, because you're the minister, you're the, uh, the angel of hail, and everyone knows that water extinguishes fire. And therefore, your action would not be regarded as a great miracle. Rather, I, uh, says Gabriel, the ministering angel, the Malachi Ashores of fire, of Aish, let me go down and I'll cool the furnace from within. And I'll burn it from without to consume those who threw these men into the furnace. And therefore, we'll perform a miracle within a miracle that the people in the fire will be saved, and the people standing outside the fire will be burnt. And so God says to Gabriel, descend. And at that time, says the Gemara, Gabriel praised God and said, Be'emes Hashem le'olam, hallelujah, which is for you, says from Tehillim, chapter 117 of Tehillim, verse 2. Be'emes Hashem le'olam, hallelujah, that the emes of God endures forever. In other words, God had fulfilled his promise to Gabriel 
more than a thousand years earlier when Gabriel wanted to go and save Avram, he was denied the opportunity to do so. And now, a thousand years later, God, so to speak, is paying him back. God doesn't deny anybody any type of reward uh, for any action or, or volunteering to do a good action. You'll always be rewarded for it. So that's the story of Gabriel. Gabriel is a Malach Hashores of fire. So he's been commanded, uh, as far as we're concerned, within the context of the allegory, the allegorical vision of Yechezkel, um, to go and take this fire, this heavenly fire, and throw it down, and that it should be a, uh, a catalyst for the destruction of Yerushalayim, which of course is only going to take place in another five years' time. It's not going to take place now. What Yechezkel is seeing is an allegory, that uh, this is what will happen to Yerushalayim, that Yerushalayim will be burned down, the base of Migdash will be burned down, and then, as we discussed last week, that will be an act of chesed from God, because the original plan was that everybody inside Yerushalayim would be killed. Here, God, so to speak, will be taking out at least part of his fury, uh, legitimate fury, not on the people themselves, but on the city and on the temple. So, as we're going to see, it's not going to be so straightforward, because although, you, although God has instructed Gabriel to do it, it's quite clear, um, if we go back to the... Um, we go back to the first verse in, in the chapter. Um, no, in the second verse of the chapter, um, um, which is the verse we're doing now, you see the language of the verse, Vayama el ha'ish, Read the verse with me. Vayama el ha'ish, God said to the man uh, wearing the white garb, that was... Um, uh, Gabriel, he told him to take the fire. But then it says Vayomer again. And uh, the second Vayomer is, is Gabriel speaking to uh, the other angels, to the Chayas. He didn't want to do it. He was told to pick up the coals, but he didn't do it. So he told the Chayas to pass them to him. And as we're going to see, Gabriel is not keen on, on uh, carrying out God's orders here. And uh, what we're going to see later on is that, uh, to a certain extent, certain angels within the context of um, certain angels within the hierarchy of angels, no, 99.99% of angels do not have free will. And they don't have the ability to do anything other than what God tells them to do. They are malachim. The word malach comes from the language of a messenger. They do what they're told. But there are also malachim in the hierarchy of the angelic world, uh, certainly within the context of the Malachi Ashores, God's ministering angels, that not only do they have, um, or not only are they given jobs, um, but they're given the opportunity to fulfill the mission in any way they see fit. And also they have a certain type of latitude um, in respect to free will. Not, obviously not like a human being, uh, we have free will to decide whatever we want to do. We can choose to keep the Torah, we can choose to reject it, we can choose to do whatever we want. Um, but it, it would appear that certain angels, we're going to see, certain angels do have this capacity uh, to make free, certain types of free will decisions, and uh, they will be subject to prosecution and uh, punishment in the same way that human beings will. And again, this only applies to the a hierarchy of angels, a handful of angels, of which Gabriel is one. And uh, again, more about that shortly um, as we get further into the chapter. But let's go back to the chapter now and look at verse 3. So it says, V'hakruvim, chapter uh, 10 verse 3, V'hakruvim omdim yamin labayis. The kruvim. And just to remind you that in this chapter... Uh, the word Kruvim here is interchangeable with the word Chayas. In the first chapter, when Yechezkel is describing the Merkava, the chariot of God, he uses the, he describes the angels as Chayot, Chayas. Here in this chapter, he describes them as Kruvim, Kruvim, Cherubim. And uh, the reason for that is, as I mentioned before, is that uh, the Chayos, uh, these angels had four faces, one of the faces was the face of a was the face of a calf, um, uh, a shower, 
bull, an ox, or the face of an eagle. And uh, based on the request from Yechezkel, it was changed to that of a child, an innocent child. So these, these two words, Chaya, which is the type of angel it is, and what Yechezkel refers to them now as Kruvim, uh, are interchangeable. So uh, Yechezkel continues to describe the Merkava as he sees it, as it starts to leave you, uh, Yerushalayim. And also, as I mentioned last time and uh, the time before that, his description of the Merkava in chapter 1 is from the ground up. His description from, of the Merkava, of God's chariot in chapter 10 here, is from the apex down. He's already described the, the throne of God and we discussed the, the sapphire, the colour of the throne, the colour of sapphires, the colour of sapphire. Now he's going further down in, within the hierarchy of the, the chariot the support uh, of the chariot, which is the Chayos, uh, the Kruvim, and the Ophanim, who we're going to come to shortly. And this is what he's looking at now. So, verse 3, Vakruvim omdim yamin labais. As the God's presence, so to speak, God's Merkava, God's chariot, starts to leave the base of Migdosh, these Chayos were standing at the right of the base of Migdosh, towards the right. Bavo um, ha'ish. Um, and when the man came, like when Gabriel came forward, um, the a cloud filled the inner court, filled uh, the Kodesh Kadoshim, filled the Holy of Holies, like uh, a sign that God, so to speak, is getting ready to leave. Um, and the Kruvim was standing on the right side of the, of the house, standing on the right side of the base of Migdosh. Uh, ready to support the uh, Merkava as it, as it was going to ascend. And at that point, the Kodesh Kodoshim filled with, filled with smoke, filled with a cloud of smoke. So, as we discussed uh, previously, a long time ago now, back in chapter 1, uh, it says that here that the Kruvim stood on the right side. Um, now we know in the book of Yechezkel directions are extremely important. Um, we know that the the west side and the east side. We discussed this in chapter one, in chapter two, in chapter three. Uh, all these directional signs indicate positions in relation to the Kodesh Hakodashim. So as you enter the base of Migdosh, you're looking west, and behind you is the east. And from the perspective of the Kodesh Kodoshim, when you look out from the Holy of Holies. On the left is the north, and on the right is the south. So, when we say here, the Kruvim, Omdim Yamin Labayis, they were on the right side of the house, the right side indicates the south. <coughs> as you look out from the Holy of Holies, and on the right side, as you look out from the Holy of Holies, from the, basin, from the Kodesh Kodoshim, from the Holy of Holies, on the right side, uh, the south side, is where the menorah is. Now, the menorah represents spirituality, and on the left side, which is the north side, that's where the table of bread stood, the, the shulchan with the lechem upon him, the showbreads, and that represents the physical world. So, the menorah represents the spiritual world, so that's where they were standing. When Yechezkel is looking at the Kodesh Kodoshim, and uh, he's observing, so to speak, the Kodesh Kodoshim in this vision, filling with smoke, filling with a cloud, um, and um, uh, he sees that the, the, these angels, uh, who are the, the ones that support, that hold up God's chariot, the throne, so to speak, if you think about it in the physical, in the physical sense. Obviously, these aren't physical items. The God's chariot isn't a physical item, <coughs> and neither are these angels. Uh, or certainly not the Chayas are not physical angels. The Kruvim are not physical angels. Um, but from the perspective of Yechezkel, he sees them standing by the menorah. Um, and the message seems to be here in this verse, uh, that God's presence that uh, has not yet left the confines of the temple, of the base of Midrash, was now stationed on the right, on the southern, on the spiritual side of the base of Migdosh, um, As it, uh, so to speak, starts to leave the base of Migdosh, uh, or starts to leave the Kodesh Kodoshim, the Holy of Holies, where it resides, where God's Shekhinah, where God's presence resides, as it comes out from there, it veers off to the right. Um, 
to the spiritual side, to where the menorah is. Um, and um, their, their job, the job of these angels, are to, so to speak, pick up God's presence, if you can think about it in, the physical, ter- in physical terms. Um, and that area, it, obviously, that area of the Kodesh Kadoshim and the area of the menorah still contained Kedusha. God hadn't left yet. Um, whereas the left uh, from the Kodesh Kadoshim, the north of the Kodesh Kadoshim, where we said that the Lechem Aponim, the, the Shulchan, the table stood, where the Lechem Aponim stood, which represented materialism, uh, was already completely desecrated, as we've discussed. We discussed this in a previous chapter, in chapter 8. There were certain areas um, outside the Kodesh Kadoshim that had already, already been desecrated. If you remember, the people that were bound down to the sun with their backsides to the Kodesh Kadoshim, that area was already desecrated. The last remaining area outside the Kodesh Kadoshim that hadn't yet been desecrated was the area that the menorah was, which is on the right, which is why the Kruvim Omdim Miyamin Labais, which is why the Kruvim stood on the right-hand side of the house, the, of the Besamikdosh, the southern side, where the menorah was, and that's where God's presence is going to move to. Um, if you remember in chapter 8, when God showed Yecheskel the four examples of the Evodazora, uh, the Semel, the, the uh, idol of King Manasseh, the secret chamber where they were worshipping all the Evodazora, all the pagans, the women with the idols on the footsteps, on the steps of the Beit Samikdosh, worshipping the idol, uh, Tammuz, and the men bowing down uh, to the sun in this area, in this area right in front of the Kodesh Kadoshim. Um, all those events took place in the northern section of the Beit Samikdosh. So the only place left in the, the, the whole area of the Beit Samikdosh that hasn't yet been desecrated is the right-hand side, the southern side, where the menorah is, and that's where God's presence, presence is moving to. Um, and um, it's going to be picked up, so to speak, in, in human terms, in physical terms, in material terms. Uh, that's the point, well, that's the pick-up point, where the angels, the Chayos, and we'll see the Ophanim, uh, will pick up the Merkava and leave the Beit HaMikdash from. That's the departure point. So that's why it says the Kruvim Omdim Miyamin Labayas. The Kruvim, or the Chayos, these cherubs, these Chayos, these angels stood on the right-hand side. That was the only place left in the base of Igdosh that had any Kedusha left in it. And uh, the Posik says, Bevo'ish. Um, that was the time that the angel Gavriel, um, you know, because that's the departure point. And that's the time that the angel Gabriel was tasked with burning down the base of Migdosh. And that's the time he arrived on the scene. Um, but he was unable at this point in time to fulfill the duty because he arrived. But as the Possek says right at the end, the cloud of God's presence was still God's presence, God's Shekhinah, uh, God's essence was still there and present. Um, so that it, uh, it completely filled the chamber, the area of the Kodesh Kadoshim and the southern area outside the Kodesh Kadoshim where the menorah stood. So God's presence hadn't left yet. So at that point, even though Ish, it says that Gabriel arrived, nevertheless at that point uh, the base of couldn't be dis- destroyed because um, uh, God's presence hadn't left. It hadn't gone through the Miftan. It hadn't gone over the threshold of the base of Migdosh, and therefore the base of Migdosh could not be destroyed yet. Um, so there, that's that's where we're up to. So we're, we're at the point we're at God's departure point. God, so to speak, has left the Kodesh Kadoshim, which is God's abode, which is where God speaks, spoke to Moshe from, from between the two Kruvim, the two cherubs that sat upon the Oren Hakodesh. The Ark of the Covenant that sat above, uh, that sat on the floor of the Kodesh Kadoshim. Uh, God's moved from there. He's outside, so to speak, the Kodesh Kadoshim. He's in the Chotzer Pnimis. He's in, in the area of the menorah. And now God, so, so to speak, moves from there as well. He makes his departure. This is verse 4. Vayorem Kavod Hashem Then God, the God's glory, 
whatever that means. The word kavod Hashem, nobody really knows what that means. We translate it as God's glory, but it really is uh, absolutely impossible to translate. Um, it's really, it just means God's essence. And uh, anyone that's learned uh, Derech Hashem, uh, with me, or with anybody else in fact, will know that describing what God is, using trying to translate Kavod Hashem, the glory of God, or the honor of God, into, uh, you know, manageable English, or into um, uh, English that can be understood, or any language that can be understood, is absolutely impossible. We can never describe what God is. We have words for it that describe what God is, God, God is but we can't translate the words. Uh, we can only explain what God does. We can never understand what God is. It's impossible. Lo yirani ha'odam v'chai. Even Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, God told him, Lo yirani ha'odam v'chai. It's impossible for a human being to appreciate what I am, my essence, uh, while they're in physical form, while they're human beings. Just not, we just haven't got the mental, intellectual, imaginary um, uh, capacity to appreciate something that is ain't self, that is infinite. And in fact, uh, uh, as a mathematician, um, uh, when I read the Rambam and... Um, he actually defines infinity as something we don't know. I mean, you know, because when we think about mathematics and we think about infinity, so we think about a range of numbers that never ends. Well, that's just something that we can't take in either. How can there be something that never ends? So the Rambam translates the word infinity to mean something we don't know. So that's essentially what God's essence is, infinite. And being infinite, it means essentially, in brackets, I don't know what that is. Anyone who's got any um, intellectual honesty will just tell you, you know, uh, in mathematics we have a word for it, an infinite number or an infinite series. In essence, we mean we don't know, we can't quantify it. We can't quantify it because our intellect can't encompass something that is, uh, has got no beginning and not got no end. And um, numbers, unfortunately, do not have a beginning and don't have an end. And they're just there. So, very similar to that is the idea of God. We can't appreciate what his essence is. So, when it says here, we just have to translate it, the glory, the honor of God lifted itself up from the Kruv, onto the threshold of the house, in, of the base of Mikdosh, uh, the doorstep of the base of Mikdosh, and the whole base of Middash was filled with the cloud. And the courtyard was filled with the splendor, the noga, the halo of the glory of God. Now we can, we, we can have an insight into what that looked like from the perspective of Yechezkel, uh, because we know what a noga is. A noga is something that is uh, a halo, and we discussed this in... Um, we discussed this in um, chapter one. Uh, see if I've still got that picture. Um, I'll show it to you. This is this is how they um, envisaged envis- envisioned, uh, or how Yechezkel envisioned what was going on here. Um, let me just share it with you. If I can find it. Give me a second. Um, so here we are. Let's see if I can share it with you. Uh, isn't, isn't what isn't technology amazing? Um, okay, can everyone see that? That is. That is the halo. That's the halo of a total eclipse. So, that's how it, that, something like that. That's what he's seeing. The, 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 the backdrop there, the halo. That's what he's seeing, like the cloud, like the, the afterglow of God, so to speak. Uh, but he can't actually see, um, what the essence is, because, like, the moon's in the middle, the moon's in the way. All he can see is the afterglow, the halo around, God's essence as it starts to leave. So that's 
something, I mean, it's not exactly, but, but it's something similar to, um, to what um, uh, Yechezkel is seeing here. It's God's uh, presence, so to speak. It's not the, not the moon in front, it's what's behind it, the, the glow behind it, the almost blinding light behind it. Um, and so to speak, the sun would be the God's essence, but it's, it's blacked out. It's blacked out because uh, the, the moon's in the way, and in the context of the, this verse, uh, our intellect's in the way. We can't, we can't fathom what that actually looks like. We can only see the afterglow, the, uh, the, um, the halo that surrounds God's, so to speak, presence. So I'll stop the share and go back to... So that's what he's seeing. That, that's the type of thing that he's, um, he's seeing here. And um, the Abarabinel here explains uh, which Kruv we're talking about here. Because if you look at the Posuk, uh, it's, it's a bit confusing because it says, Vayorim Kavod Hashem, again, um, in verse 4, Vayorim Kavod Hashem al HaKruv. The glory of God lifted itself up from the Kruv. Now, are we talking here about Achaya for, from a, uh, from the perspective of one of the angels, or we're actually literally talking about one of the Kruvim, one of the, the child cherubs that were in the Basamik, that were in the Kodesh Kadoshim? You know, as I mentioned before, inside the Kodesh, the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, and sitting on the Ark of the Covenant were the two Kruvim, were the two cherubs are made of gold in the shape of a male and female charge to a male and female child um, uh, that demonstrated that were there to display the uh, the relationship between God and the Jewish people. Uh, so there was an actual crook there. So it's not clear from the verse exactly um, if God is lifting himself up, his presence up onto the back of one of the chayos, one of the angels, who's called a crook, or he's actually lifting himself up from the, the actual Kruvim, the gold Kruvim, that are inside the base of Migdash. So the Abarbanel tells you what's going on here. He says, um, Or Pa'omim. It says, we use the, the language of a Kruv here, uh, a cherub, in the singular, uh, in this chapter. To tell you that when, when, when this chapter uses the word cherub in the singular, it's actually talk, it's not talking about the angels, it's talking about the kruvim, the actual golden kruvim that sat in the base of Mikdosh, in the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies. And uh, you're going to be confused. Because sometimes it will use the word kruv uh, to refer to the uh, the 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 um, um, angels uh, that also were the carriers of God's chariot. Avol kruvim. But when the word in the chapter is kruvim, in this plural, tomid nama alamalochim haruchanim. You should know that when the word kruv is used in the plural, kruvim, it's always referring to the uh, angels, it's never referring to the golden cherub, cherubs that sat in the Kodesh Kedoshim. So we can deduce from here that the, the uh, probability is that when the Possek says that God raised himself, raised his presence from above the Kruv, we're talking about when God lifted himself up, so to speak. If you can imagine what God doing that, uh, from above the golden cherubs, where his presence sat, above the Oron, um, between the two Kruvim, between the two golden cherubs, the two children, golden cher- children's faces, that sat actually in the base of Migdash, and God's Shefa, God's influence, God's power, God's whatever it is you want to describe this is, that's what we mean by the Kavod Hashem, Asher Niska Kan, Shuhuram Vanosam that uh, the I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it lifted itself up from where it was embedded uh, in the Kodesh Kadoshim and started to move beyond the confines of the Kodesh Kadoshim, as we discussed previously, and starting to leave. And he says this verse is describing God's presence rising from 
out of uh, the holiest areas of the base of Migdosh. And eventually, this is the first of ten stages um, of God departing the base of Migdosh in Yerushalayim, as we discussed in the previous chapter. You can go back and listen to that again, where the ten places were. God eventually will depart completely, which is something that um, Yechezkel saw in, the visit, in his first vision in the chapter, when he saw the Merkava, God's chariot, actually flying towards the north, um, um, having left the area of Eretz Yisrael completely. But this is what he's seeing now. It's something that's taking place, uh, so to speak, out of time context, in, in, not within the context of time. This is uh, going to be taking place six years from now, or five years from now. Uh, but Yechezkel seeing it, in, so to speak, in his allegorical vision in real time. Uh, but God's going to make ten stops on his journey outside Yerushalayim, something we'll discuss later on, the ten stops. Why those ten stops? What was he waiting for? Those are all things that we can discuss later on when we get to the appropriate verses. Um, now, the point, the point of God's presence rising from the Kruvim, from these cherubs, and starting uh, the first of the ten journeys away from the base of Migdash and away from Yerushalayim and eventually out of the land of Israel completely, um, was to allow for God's decree to be fulfilled. Now, God's got a decree here that Yerushalayim is going to be destroyed. There's going to be hundreds of thousands of casualties. Uh, the city of Yerushalayim is going to be burned down. The base of Migdash is going to be burned down. God needs to be, so to speak, out of the way first. Um, uh, in order for the decree to be filled, as the Malbim says. He says this is absolutely imperative. In other words, it can't take place. The destruction of Yerushalayim could not take place while God is, so to speak, in residence in Yerushalayim. As the Malbim says here, God did this, this uh, first action to move, to get out the Kodesh Kedoshim, and then exit the base of Midrash completely, walk over the Miftan, or, or fly over the Miftan, over the threshold outside the base of Midrash, in order to allow for the incineration of the base of Midrash itself. This is God's decree uh, being enforced, in which he decreed that his own house should be burnt down. And as we discussed before, this is the opinion of the, of the Malbim and the opinion of most of the commentators here. This was not originally God's plan. God's plan was not originally that the whole of Yerushalayim should be burned down or that the Beit Samigdash should be burned down. The decree really was originally that everyone in Yerushalayim should be slaughtered. But, uh, so to speak, God has paid attention to Yechezkel's plea. Yechezkel's plea with that God should uh, so to speak, pour out his fury on the city and on the temple and uh, use that as mitigation to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, better that she go into exile than to be murdered on the street, slaughtered on the street. So God's doing this, uh, says the Malvim, to pour out his fury on the buildings, the stones and the bricks, mitigating the destruction and the suffering of the people of Yushalayim. And he says, finally, that the, the base of Midrash was filled with the cloud of God's presence, whatever that means. This was the first journey that God left the Holy of Holies. And uh, it's Lachutz. Uh, He's going to Chutz Lorit. His next stop is, well, not the next stop, but the eventual destination will be outside Eretz Yisrael. God, so to speak, will not return his presence fully. Uh, I think this is, uh, I've never heard anybody say this, but it's my opinion, certainly my opinion from the Pesukim that I've learned in Tanakh, that God's presence as it was at this particular moment in time, or just before this moment in time, it's never been restored. God's presence as it was, at the time of the first temple, has never been restored to Yerushalayim as it was. God, so to speak, did return part of his presence, did return with the building of the second temple, which will take place uh, in, uh, from the perspective of where we're talking now, in approximately 77 years' time. But 
uh, and it will last for a period of 420 years. But uh, the God's presence, as it was from the time that Shlomo Melech built the temple in the year 832 BCE to the time of destruction here, which is going to be in 422, 423 BCE, the pre- God's presence in the debates of in the first temple period was God's total presence, so to speak. God's whole essence was in the temple. When he came back, when the, the Shiva, when the, um, Shiva Tzion, when that, those that returned from the Babylonian exile came back to build the second temple, the second temple, God's presence was there, but not to the extent it was now. So God's leaving, and um, so to speak, his presence is, in total, the kovod of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, so to speak, has never returned to Yerushalayim uh, so far. But we're talking about 2000, nearly 2,500 years ago. So, um, his partial presence returned, but uh, not to the extent that it was there at that time. So, God's leaving the base of Migdosh, and it says, The appearance of God leaving was like a noga, and again, this is something we discussed in chapter 1, and I showed you the picture. Um, that's the general view of most of the commentators of what Yechezkel is seeing. This afterglow, uh, a halo effect. You don't actually see the real thing. You just see the eclipse. Um, so, God's presence is leaving the base of Mikdosh. And uh, really, uh, in his historical terms, never to have returned to the, ex- the same extent up until this very moment in time. Uh, God should be here be amazed that uh, God's presence should return to Yerushalayim. I gave a, a, a shear on on this issue um, when Donald Trump, and this is not politically correct to speak about Donald Trump, he's just been arrested, right? So um, for some peculiar reason. Um, but um, when, if, if there was a, a huge hull- who writing this, David Barrett. Harry, apologies. This question seems flippant. If the essence of God was within the Kodesh Kedoshim prior to the destruction, and if we are taught that God is everywhere, where did he, the essence, go to when he left the Kodesh Kedoshim finally? Into exile with the Jewish people. But uh, God's, God goes into exile with the Jewish people. Uh, what that means, I don't know. Um, but God's presence is with the Jewish people, but in, in, in a state of Hester, in a state of Hester Ponit. You can't see it like, you can't see it like if you went to the base of Middash in the first temple period, so you could see miracles on a daily basis. You, whether it was raining or snowing or hailing. So when they brought sacrifices on the base of Middash, so a fire came down from heaven and consumed it. So, you know, you knew God was in town. Um, that never happened in the second base of Middash period. And miracles are not open since that period of time, since the destruction of the first temple. We don't have open miracles anymore. And that's a sign that God is still there. It's not a sign that God's, you know, gone to Miami for a few weeks, or a few hundred years, or a few thousand years, you know, to cool off and, you know, take a vacation. But it's an indication that God, so to speak, won't allow his presence, his glory, to be seen by mankind at this particular point in history during this period of history. Um, he's behind the power of God, if you follow the, the Kabbalistic language. He's behind the curtain. And this is uh, just, uh, it's a great question. Um, and it's not flippant. It's a very important question. Um, we, I just want to mention this because, you know, it's Pesach in two days' time. So, um, so um, I think maybe just take a moment to um, answer David's question in a little bit more detail and maybe give you uh, some food for thought for the Seder night. Uh, the Ramchal uh, writes in great detail about the essence of the word Geula. The word Geula means redemption. And uh, the word redemption is, is in English, and as it is in Hebrew, it implies something that's been redeemed. Now, in English and in Hebrew, the word redeemed is uh, an expression of setting something back to a previous uh, to a previous time. In other words, uh, a great example is if you go to the theatre and you give your coat in to the cloakroom and he gives you a ticket. 
right? And when the theatre finishes, when the play finishes, you go back, you give your ticket, and you redeem your cloak, your cloak, your coat, or your jacket. Similarly, if you go to the pawnbrokers and you you uh, pawn some item, he gives you a ticket, and when you've got money enough money to redeem it, so you go back and you redeem it, you you get it back in its original form. Now, redemption, says Ramchal, that's what redemption is all about. The essence of redemption. You can't have a Sedanah. The first idea that you must have in your head is that the essence of the redemption is about redemption. Redemption means redeeming. You're going back to a previous point in time. The essence of being taken out of Egypt is so that the Jewish people... Could, be revert, could revert to a previous point in history. And the previous point in history they needed to revert to was to remember what it was like to be Avraham. Now, Avraham was the founder of the monotheistic uh, uh, religions, um, certainly Judaism and Islam, and he is the focal point. His attitude as an Ivri, someone that stands alone, stands in opposition to what everybody else says, to paganism, to materialism, to wokeness, to everything else that's the subjective moralities of the rest of the world. That You can't have a Sedanite. This is the Ramchal talking in the, this 18th century, and there's not somebody talking in the 21st century about, you know, current moral uh, depravity in the world that exists today. He's talking in the 18th century. He said that the essence, the first thing you have to drill into the children, which is what the essence of the Sadonite is, is that leaving Egypt was all about reverting, taking the Jewish people to remind them where they came from. We came from Abba Mavina, somebody who was prepared to stand on the other side of the river, Me'eva Hanoha, which is mentioned directly right at the beginning of the Sadonite in the Haggadah. Somebody who's prepared to stand up and say, we don't accept subjective morality. We only accept objective morality and the, the rule of God, the rule of, of law, what God stands for. We are monotheists. We don't care what it costs us to stand up and say it. That's what we are. And unless you get that message across, the whole story of the exodus from Egypt makes no sense. Because why are you being redeemed? Redeemed means to go back to a previous point in time, to go back to your basics, to go back to understanding what you are. Once you understand what you are, right, it's not what you do, it's what you are. And um, it's something we can't understand about God, but we can certainly understand it about ourselves. So the first message of the Sadonite is to understand that redemption means we have to take a look at ourselves and go back to the situation we were at the time of Avram, to be able to stand alone, if necessary, to be able to stand alone without any allies, without anybody else. The only thing we need on our side is God. And uh, says the Ramchal, if you haven't got that message, if that isn't the message that leads into the discussion of the Exodus from Egypt, then the whole purpose the whole essence of the later discussion about how it happened and the splitting of the Red Sea and the plagues and all the rest of it, it, it doesn't mean anything. Because you have to appreciate what you are. Once you appreciate what you are uh, and where you come from and what we're yearning for, for a previous time, for the, to be like Avram Ovino, to stand alone if necessary, that at that point, once you've recognised that, then you can move forward. Then you can start talking about, you know, we're, we exited from Egypt and we're moving forward and we're moving forward to receive the Torah and we're moving forward to be a light unto the nations. That's okay. Then you can talk about your Tias Mitzrayim and splitting of the Red Sea and the plagues and the giving of the Torah. And you can talk about Cherut. You can talk about freedom. And you can talk about all sorts of stuff. But any talk about any of that stuff, it becomes irrelevant. Unless you know where you come from. Being in touch with who you are uh, is far more important than anything else on the Sedanite. And he says that uh, um, that is the, if you apply it to this situation, that's what we're yearning for here in this, in this if you look at this story of Yechezkel, God's leaving the base of Migdash. And um, 
This is a long time after the exodus from Egypt. But um, uh, what we yearn for, if you think about the Jewish people, what we yearn for is Mashiach, right? We yearn for the Mashiach. We yearn for the rebuilding of the base of Midrash. That's redemption. But it's going back to a previous state of affairs where Yerushalayim had God's presence in it, where there was a building there called the base of Midrash. Where, so, redemption in the context of the Exodus and redemption in the context of the Mashiach are exactly the same idea. To understand what is it you want? What is it we want? We want to revert back to a previous incarnation of ourselves. To an incarnation of ourselves when God was resident in Yerushalayim and Yerushalayim was the center, center of the universe. Yerushalayim was the center of the world. And this, I gave this talk, um, when the, the, all, the, all the craziness was going on, you know, Donald Trump, Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that, he's built, a, uh, he's built the American embassy in Yerushalayim. Good luck to him. Marvellous. Fantastic. That's not what we're after. I mean, it was very nice of him, and he's, you know, he's a decent chap. And, you know, he spoke to APAC, and, uh, you know, he's, he, he did some wonderful things for Israel. But the reality is we don't need an American embassy in Yerushalayim. We need God's embassy in Yerushalayim. And that's what, it, that's what Geula means. Geula doesn't mean um, having an American embassy in Yerushalayim and having uh, American allies and having this ally and that ally and the other ally. Redemption to us means going back to a previous point in time where God's embassy was in Yerushalayim and fully functioning. So, um, just to, to wrap up on the, the Ramchal, because it's a very, very long piece and a very, very complicated piece. I don't want to get sidetracked too much by it, but it's a great question, uh, David. Um, the God, so to speak, is he, he's knocking on the door, called Odido Fake. He wants to come back to Yerushalayim. And he wants to be in residence here. And he wants to he wants to redeem us, to take us back to a previous incarnation of ourselves. But there's uh, you know, he's waiting for us to do our bit as well. And we can't do our bit while we're bickering with each other, right? Which is one of the things that God won't. He won't walk into a city that's full of bickering, which is full of hate, which is full of invective, which is full of um, pe- Jewish people hating each other. That can't be. That you can't have. And uh, that won't, God won't tolerate. God won't return under those circumstances. So that is the idea. I think, um, jump to the first new message to you was, is Eliyahu what the Seder is part of God's essence? No. No. He's not part of God's essence. He's at the Seder as a, as a, as a um, sort of a punishment for him. He made a declaration that the Jewish people would never survive. So he has to come to every Brismila and he has to come to the Seder night. He comes to the Brismila um, to give aidus to God that I, he, I was wrong and you were right, that the Jewish people would be eternal, that they're still doing Brismila. And he comes to the Seder night to, to give evidence to the fact that we're still celebrating the Exodus from Egypt. And if you notice, this idea of redemption is the essence of everything we do. Everything we do. Shabbos, Yom Tov, everything is Zeichel Yitzis Mitzrayim, says the Ramchal. Everything is all about the redemption from Egypt. It's so vital. The message of Geula is so vital to the Jewish people to remind them where they came from. That what we want is to be redeemed, to go back to what we were, to go back to the time of Avram Avinu, and in the context of what, where we are now, to go back to the time when God's presence was in Yerushalayim, in a fully fully functioning base of Middash. So that's the essence of the Seder. If you haven't got that, if you don't get that message across to the children, and you don't get that message across to yourself, so, the ongoing discussion about how it was done, and the plagues, and how many were there, 250, 50, 200, and, uh, you know, all the rest of the stuff, all the Maggid, all the story. So, it's just a story. But if it's in the context of what you want to be, where you want to be, and when you, where, you, where, you want to, where we want to find ourselves, um, without that, then the whole thing becomes, um, uh, becomes I wouldn't say it becomes irrelevant, but uh, the message is lost. Right? It's only when you understand the idea of uh, Geula, of redemption, um, that you can actually and uh, understand what that means. That you, then you can actually appreciate the the job that God did. 
in taking us out, what the, get, what the aims were, and the aims of going to get the Torah, and the aims of going through the desert and arriving in the land of Israel, and being a, and building a town, and everything else that went that followed up. It's all about that starting point. We want to be at that starting point. We want to be that Avram Avinu. We want to be the people that are Ava and not, that stand on the other side of the river and say, we don't care what you believe. We don't care what you say. We don't care what your morality is. We don't care that you hate us. All we care about is doing God's will. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. We're here to do God's will and spread God's morality to the rest of the world. That's our job. Nothing else. That's who we want to be. That's who Avram was. And uh, that's what redemption is. Anyway, um, that was a great question. That's a really, really good question. I hope that's answered it partially. Uh, and the essence of the answer is God's Hester. God hides himself until that day comes. Till we're prepared to, you know, to look at ourselves and say we want to be redeemed in that context. We want to go back. We want to be those people. So... And I think it's a great place to stop, actually, because we're up to verse 5. So, where we're up to is God's presence um, is about to depart the base of Mikdash in this vision, in Yefeskel's vision. Remember, again, I can't stress too much that uh, this is all taking place, this is all taking place uh, five years before the actual destruction. And uh, this is Yefeskel, so to speak, um, preview. Like he's having a private showing of forthcoming events before they happen. And God, want, God obviously wants to gauge his reaction to them. And Yechestel has been putting in some requests to have uh, whatever's going to happen mitigated. God, so to speak, has agreed with part of it in the, in the context of the fact that the city is going to be destroyed by fire rather than allow the Babylonians just to kill everybody inside the city. That isn't going to happen now, but certainly you shall I'm is going to be destroyed, the base of Midrash is going to be burned down, and God's presence is going to leave until, um, so to speak, the redemption comes, which is, I think, the essence of David's question there. I hope that answered your question. Um, did it? David, where's David? Did that, did that answer your question? No, 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 both. That's why you, that's why human beings can't understand what's going on here. Because we say, uh, um, that God's kavod, so to speak, fills the world. Well, if it's, if it's in the Kodesh Kadashim, how can it fill the world? So the answer to that question is, don't know, right? Because human beings can't appreciate something that's infinite that can be in two places at one time. So, that's the start of understanding that there's things we can't understand. So, you know, so that's just one of those things that you're just going to have to live with. That God's essence fills the universe. And at the same time, his essence, his kavod, is also fixated or, or fixed in the Kodesh Kedoshim at the same time. And both can be true at the same time, despite the fact that in linear physics, that can't be true. Right? It can be true at the uh, atomic level, but it certainly can't be true uh, in the general physical world that things can be in two places at one time. And certainly not infinite, infinite objects being contained. You should have asked a better question. How can an infinite object be contained in a finite environment? Which is an equally valid question. And the answer to this is the same. Don't know. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> those are just questions you're going to have to live with. Uh, in the meantime, that's where we're up to. We're up to verse 5, which is where we'll pick up. Chapter 10, verse 5, we'll pick up there. And please God, in two weeks' time, not next week is Cholomayed, there'll be no shear, but there'll certainly be a shear in two weeks' time. Uh, I want to wish everybody, um, all our guys, a kosher Pesach Pesach Zaman Cheiruseinu, and remember... Uh, to spread the word about Geula, what redemption is on the Seder night. I think it's the most vital message. You should all have a gebenched uh, yomtov, eat plenty of matzah. There are plenty of kosher Pesach uh, 
uh, stomach remedies to get you over the matzo season. Um, sorry? The, yeah, whatever. There's, there's, there's a list on uh, Maccabi. If you go to maccabi.co.il, they'll give you all the stomach remedies that are kosher for Pesach to get you through the matzo season. I wish you all a good bench, Jontov, and thank you very much for paying attention and not falling asleep during my shirim over the last 12 months. We should only go from Michal al Choyo. Uh, in the next year, please God, we'll learn uh, maybe another couple of chapters of Yechez. Well, no, we'll eventually finish the book, please God. And you should all have a wonderful Chag, Chag Samech for Kasher, and Koltov to everybody. Bye-bye. Larry's not well. Larry's sick. Yeah, I know. He's got a birthday sickness. Okay. Doesn't want to... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Colton. Colton. Oh, see you later, bye. Thanks, Samuel.